Hey, it's Bill Simmons. We're not just reacting to the NBA playoffs on my podcast. We're also doing it on the Ringer NBA show and the Mismatch podcast. They are coming after some of these NBA playoff games. Check it out Monday, Wednesday, and Friday nights on the Ringer Podcast Network. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Hello, media consumers. Welcome to Pressbox. Brian Curtis of The Ringer here, along with producer Erica Cervantes. I am coming to you today from the beautiful city of Tulsa, Oklahoma. Why? Because the PGA Championship is here. And my guest today is the guy who has called this tournament 32 consecutive times, CBS's Jim Nance. I recruited Nance for a series I have here at the Press Box called Announcer Anthology. Here's how it works. I take an announcer who has a long history with a sporting event, then we slip back in time and revisit what it was like to announce a few memorable additions of that event. It's like visiting an actor's IMDb page, but only stopping on the four-star movies. Nance and I picked four PGA Championships to revisit today. The 1991 edition won by John Daly, the 2000 edition won by Tiger Woods, 2014, which was won by Rory McIlroy in Near Darkness, and finally, last year's tournament won by, that's right, Phil Mickelson who isn't even playing this year after his comments about the Saudi-backed golf tour. I think you'll hear a very interesting mini-history of Nance's own broadcasting career, which begins here when he was just 32 years old, still calling his CBS colleague Mr. Summerall. When Nance and I talked this week at Southern Hills Country Club, it was the day after his 63rd birthday. Here's Jim Nance. All right, Jim, let's start with the 1991 PGA Championship, John Daly at Crooked Stick in Carmel, Indiana. You were 32 years old when you called that tournament. You've been at CBS six years. Where are you in your network career in 1991? Honored to be a part of the CBS golf team. That was a big deal to me. Uh, I'm going through the cycle now of working football, basketball, including a role with the uh, NCAA tournament. Earlier that year, I would have called my first Final Four in championship after five years of hosting it so now we come to crooked kick stick with a lot of excitement because we haven't done it cbs had the pga like back in the 50s and then had a long run with abc sports you know the whole terry jastro and producing and jim mckay and chris shankle and dave marr and all those voices of my youth so i was thrilled to have a pga they had not had the most exciting PGA the year before we took over. Uh, it was at Shoal Creek in Birmingham. There was the controversy around Shoal Creek and its, uh, and its membership makeup. Wayne Grady won the tournament, and it, it wasn't memorable, let's say, for, from at least from a, from a golf historical standpoint, competitively. So now we come on board in 91. What is this? We've had the Masters, and I've been a part of the Masters now at this point for six years. And we were landing in Carmel, uh, Indiana, just outside of outside of uh, Indianapolis. And there was just a lot of excitement. You know, we wanted to put the major championship treatment on this. 
and hoped that there would be a bigger story to unfold golf-wise than they had had in recent years. And we walked into, I think, to this day, I know we always want to kind of favor things that just happened uh, in, in, in current space, but I still think it has the legs to hold up as maybe the greatest Cinderella story that golf has ever seen in the modern era. I'll qualify it that way with John Daly winning. Gentlemen, story like one we have never seen before. John Daly, your PGA Championship winner. Congratulations to you, John. Thank you, John. You called it 91, the greatest thing to happen to golf since Jack Nicklaus won the Masters in 1986. Well, there I'm using my own personal history there, I guess, because that was my reference point. My first Masters was Jack in 86. What a thrill to, to be there. 26 years old at the time. Absolutely scared out of my mind. I mean, mortified <laughs> that I was going to make a mistake. I mean, I truly, truly was. It was too big. Now that I look back on it, now that I'm in my 60s, and I was less than four years out of graduation from from Houston, and this was the dream. And now I land at the '86 Masters, and I'm on the 16th hole. I'm not at not that there's anything wrong with being at 10 or 11, 12 or whatever, but you're late in the game, and and the action is building to a frenzy. And you now you got Jack Nicholas making a charge that no one saw coming. So it was a very weighty assignment. And it feels like to me now that it was all a dream. Did it really happen? Was I really there? I'm, I'm just so, so blessed or fortunate to be able to say that I was there and I didn't screw it up. You know, I was trying to make sure I was good enough to make the cut. You know, we always go through the graphics at the end. Top 12 and ties will be invited the next year. Sure. It was top 16 back then. Now it's been reduced. I was just wanting to be top 16 in ties. I wanted to be back for 87. <laughs> uh, anyhow, on the master's side, I've been there now, 37, 37 masters. But this was our first PGA. And I have, it is funny, my memory, when I dial up that file in my brain, you know, things pop up that I don't even know are still in there. But one of the first things when you set up the question was I remember on either Thursday or Friday, there was a lightning strike. There was a weather delay. And our compound was out in this area where they had like general parking and a lightning struck strike, uh, hit a guy in the parking lot and he was killed. Jeez. And I was doing the late night show as well as the, the daily coverage. And, uh, we actually like went to the hospital to try to get a report for the late night show. Tragically, the man died. He was a father of uh, two young girls. And come Sunday afternoon, John Daly, who probably didn't have 10 cents to his name, takes home not only the Wanamaker, but $230,000. That's what first paid. I only remember that because he took the 30 off of 230 and right there with my mic in my hand asking about the, 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 how much the scope of this win, first thing he did was he said the first 30000 is going to a college scholarship fund for those two girls who lost their, their daddy this week. And I just, man, it was a powerful thing. But there were all kinds of interesting things that, Brian, were going on behind the scene that week. You know, as this story is emerging, you heard as the week was building about him driving into the night from Dardanelle, Arkansas, and not even getting a, really a practice round, getting in because Nick Price his wife, Sue, goes into labor and has uh, delivers a son. So uh, here's Nick uh, 
who's going to win two of the next three, by the way, PGA championships. He names his son Greg, Gregory, after his best friend at the time, Greg Norman. And they're all the way down to ninth on the alternate list. And number nine, which you never get to nine, not at a major, was John Daly. And he never won on tour. And I really had a presence. He never won in college at this point. Nothing. There was not there was no record there. You just knew that he could hit it. The 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 whispers were out there. There's this guy, John Daly, who takes the 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 club back way past parallel and uh he hits it longer than anybody's ever seen. And you knew about that. And almost like it was a circus act. And you know, he comes in in the middle of the night, he ends up getting Nick Price's caddy. Jeff Squeaky Medlin, who I knew really well because he was my man, Freddie Couples, former caddy. So Squeaky got on the bag. Daly shot 69 the first day and was, you know, up there pretty high. And now the second day, he doesn't fold. He actually gets either in the lead or closer to the lead. The story's building. And now Frank Jerkinian, who's sitting in the truck, the godfather. Sure. Of, of of golf television and he knew how to document stories he was a drama major theater major at penn and he sees this opportunity to build this drama up about this unknown guy this paul bunyan like character who's now emerged at the last minute last guy in the field and he he's in the mix going into the weekend so it was a lot of fun Summerall and venturi were at 18 i can't remember i i was on one of the outer holes 15 maybe um, but on Saturday, he was right there. I wish I could tell you the scores, but the point is he was going to be in contention and he was relishing all the media attention. You could see it and open hearted, open, not, not hiding anything as candid as can be. And one of the stories that came out was he was a high school place kicker. Uh huh. So the Colts were playing preseason game number one on that Saturday night at the old Hoosier Dome. And the Colts invited John Daly at 54 holes, I believe it was the leader, invited him to come to the game as their guest and kick a field goal off a tee, off a kicker's tee, between the first and second quarters. And he accepted. <laughs> no. These, Nothing these, going on in my life right now. Go to a preseason NFL game. And I'm going to go blow out my hamstring, you know, trying to <laughs> kick a field goal from 40 yards and have to WD the next day. Mm-hmm. So, of course, I went over to cover it. That was my Saturday night. And I can remember, for whatever reason, I ran into Reggie Miller as I was, uh, as I was coming into the Hoosier Dome, talked to him for a long time. I'd known him from his UCLA days. And I was just there for one purpose, not to watch the football, but to see this kick. And John Daly came out and kicked the football and got away uninjured. And he was a straight-on kicker, by the way, okay, not a sidewinder. I believe he met, knocked it through. And um, we headed to Sunday to cover one of the great Cinderella stories sports has ever known. This is an interesting story from Saturday at that PGA was that CBS viewers spotted Daly's caddy, Squeaky. 11th hole. Committing a potential rules violation. What do you remember about that? I remember that in commercial, Frank warned all the commentators that there might have been a rules infraction against Daly back, I believe it was the 11th hole. I bet on it. And 
all of us were deflated. We're all in on this amazing story, and now you're going to take it away from him? The thought was that Squeaky had taken the flag stick out and in an attempt to show him the line had actually made contact with the bottom of the pole on the putting surface. And that was the question. In that time, if you touch the ground, that would be, I can't tell you exact language on it, but that, that would not, that was not allowed. So the broadcast ends and a whole brigade of PGA of America officials descend on our compound to go into our videotape trucks and look at it. And uh, it was ruled that he never made contact and the event went on with no penalty. But for a while there, it was like, really? <laughs> you guys, somebody's going to call this one in and ruin this magnificent story and take this away from the kid? But uh, thankfully, that one went away and uh, he did prevail. You mentioned Frank Jerkinian, the godfather of televised golf. What was it like to work for him? It was one of the thrills of my life was to be mentored by Frank. And I was 26 when I started working with him. And I was a yes, sir, no, sir kid growing up. So I was always saying, yes, sir, no, sir, Mr. Trichinian. He wouldn't have any of that. After about my second week out on the tour with Frank, he called me in his office and said, listen, this is this nonsense has got to stop, you silly son of a, you know what? Frank was not subtle. Oh, Frank didn't mix his words like I am trying to right now, but he, uh, he wanted me to feel like I belonged. I was calling on the air. I was calling Pat, Mr. Summerall. Let's go back to 18. Mr. Summerall? You were doing that on the air? On the air. My first year. Wow. I didn't know better. I'm a kid right out of college. I'm just raised to be respectful of people, my elders. It's Pat Summerall. It's Pat Summerall. I was in awe. I mean, what am I doing with these guys? I'm going out to dinner with them every night. It's crazy. Um, but Frank put an end to that. He tough loved me, though, Brian. That's how I would describe it. He was really rough on me, and it was good for me because I knew everybody had said if he beats you up a little bit verbally, that means he cares. He thinks you got talent, and he, he wants to make you better. <clears throat> the Ayatollah, that's what Summerall nicknamed him. And, well, I'll, I'll say it. I, I don't say this very often because it sounds like it's self-serving, but he knew I went to Houston masquerading as a golfer and i was surrounded by really good golfers who played on the tour one of whom fred couples who won the masters and went on to a hall of fame career so he knew i i understood the game even though my modicum of talent wasn't anywhere close to being good enough to be at that level you know not even close um but he he said to me early on he said i've never had a guy that I can put my hands on and mold him into what I believe a golf anchor is supposed to be. I've always gotten guys who've come over from other sports. I've had Scully come over from baseball. I got Pat coming over from football. Now he's not disparaging them. It's just that wasn't viewed as their primary. They didn't have that background. I had a background in golf. So he thought I can take that golf knowledge. I can take this kid who's raw and I can mold him and sculpt him and yell at him and, tough love him into what I think that role should look like. And he took that on and he's been gone since early March of 2011. I got to present him into the world of golf hall of fame posthumously. I love the man. I think about him all the time and I still walk into that booth trying to make him proud.
to this day. Always think about, man, I wish I could pick up the phone, ask Frank, what can we do better? He was not one who would throw out a lot of compliments, which I am fine with that. I don't need to be stroked. But I would like the feedback in his view of what worked or what primarily didn't work. I have, when Frank passed, he had very little left. He'd made some poor investments. He had been retired for about 15 years. 96 was his last year work, and he died again 2011. When he passed away, uh, his lady friend at the time said, I wish I could give you something he considered to be like a second son. And he, she said, all I have of Frank's are his cocktail glasses. And I would like to give them to you. They're just crystal cocktail glasses. And I knew instantly the symbolism of that. Frank was a hardworking man, creative genius. At five o'clock, never was, never saw him inebriated. There were a lot of legendary stories about CBS guys of the past who yeah. drank a lot. Some of which we Frank, might have already Frank, mentioned. Go yes. ahead. Yes, <laughs> that's true. Frank was controlled. But at five o'clock, he'd pour himself a little shot of vodka, one, and he'd sit back with that glass and he would reflect on his day and it would relax him. It'd make him feel at peace and unwind. So I'm, I'm not having a cocktail once a, a day or not even once a week, but those glasses are sacred to me. And when it comes time to pour myself a little cocktail, I go right to the Trichinian crystal and I pour it and I feel like I'm toasting. I'm sipping from the same, you know, chalice as, as Frank <laughs> Trichinian. It means something to me. Okay. A lot. And, uh, how lucky am I to have had that background with Frank? Give me an example of something in a, of a way he molded you, of a habit he broke of yours when you're young. Well, I'll keep it to major championships. I'm at Augusta, and it's 86. And back then, they didn't give you the pin sheets where now they do the work for you. They show you that the whole location's four steps off the left, 21 steps off the front. You go out and get your own hole locations. So I had gone out early that Sunday morning, April the 13th of 86, to see where it was at 16, just to confirm. It's not always, but usually it's that back left. People forget in 75 when Nicholas won, it was back right. He made the 40-footer up the hill. But anyway, I went out there and confirmed my suspicions, and I walked into his office, and I said, Mr. Trichinian, so I'm still on that stage, I said, uh, I just had some thoughts today. You know, that hole is back there where there's a lot of action. What would I say if somebody knocked it in for a hole in one? Well, you know, Vern gets that now about every year. Sure. He said, are you serious? I said, yes, sir. I mean, I, I don't have a lot of experience. This. How would I handle that? He said, I can't believe you're asking me such a silly ass question. You would say nothing. I said, really? <laughs> he said, oh my God, this is a visual medium. And if you screw up my pictures, I am going to walk out of the truck while we're on the air, and I'm going to come down to 16, and I will throw you out of the tower. <laughs> so he said to me, <laughs> so, okay, sir. Now, get the hell out of my office, and don't be late for rehearsal. That's a good pre-round note. Yeah, true. I'm throw you out of the tower <laughs> if you mess up. But, you know, he, this was the thing. Off air, rough, tough. You know, he was a tiny guy, like five foot three in stature. But his voice sounded like he was seven foot six. 
He had this beautiful, booming baritone. When Jack Nicholas is standing on the tee at 16 in 1986, the moment again is one of the larger moments the sport's ever known. He's just eagled 15. We had a, a little break, one-minute commercial breaks, remember. And I know coming back, the whole world's going to be focused on Jack, now tied for the lead at age 46. This is impossible to get your mind around. We're in commercial. Suddenly, I hear Frank. And this is the way he talked to you while you're on here. Jimmy, Jimmy, now listen to me, son. I know you know there's a lot going on out here. But I want you to know one thing. You were born to do this. I have 100% faith in you that no one can handle this moment better than you can. Now just remember, I've got the pictures. You chime in when you think there's something worth saying, and I know you'll handle it well. It's almost whispering, lulling me into a trance. Five, four, three, two, one, and we're live at 16. Jack Nicholas on the tee here at 16. If there's anyone who's ever owned the 16th hole, is Jack Nicholas. When he won here in 63, he made a pivotal birdie on his way to his first green jacket. And of course, who can forget 75? Locked in a match with Johnny Miller and Tom Weiskopf, he made that 40-foot putt up the hill on his way to victory. Now, dispense with all this, and I've walked Jack right up to the point where he's ready to pull the club back. Big Trichinian rule. Never talk over a golf swing. That These days, I think those rules have long been violated and kind of tossed aside across all broadcast uh, realms with this sport. That would drive Frank insane. But I got right to the point where Jack was ready to pull the club back. And all of a sudden, he backed off the shot. He started picking up grass, tossing it up in the air. The winds had, <laughs> had switched or shifted. Now I thought, oh, my gosh, what am I going to do now? I mean, it's probably 40-second reset here. Hey, I've got to get him. Back, you know, deliberating and switching clubs, walk back up. I'm, I'm, I've got nothing, man. I'm, my bag is empty. Bring in Trichinian. Bring in Weiskopf, says Trichinian. Tom was in Butler Cabin. Tom Weiskopf, you've known Jack Nichols your whole life, Ohio State, all these tournaments through the years. Of course, Tom parenthetically, the all-time bridesmaid at Augusta, four times runner-up. I said, Tom, what is going through Jack Nicholas's mind right now? He's storming along this famed second side. It's just made eagle at 15. I'm looking for 25-second fill. Tom says very succinctly, Jim, if I had any idea what was going on in Jack Nicholas's mind, I would have won this thing two or three times myself. <laughs> that was it. Which is a good line. It was, it was a great line. It's a it's a line I get asked about it pretty often. It's an evergreen line. Um, I love Tom Weisskopf. He's uh, battling cancer these days and just communicated with him this week. But anyway, eventually Jack got back over the over the ball, hit the shot. Frank had one of those inset uh, views of him as they're watching the ball soaring against the sky. That time of day at 16, the ball looks like a beach ball coming to you from that camera and announce tower behind 16. The sun is behind you. So that ball is like it's illuminated. I mean, it really looks like this huge saucer coming to you when you're back there announcing it. And I could tell off the face 
after four days of sitting there that this thing was going to be pretty close. And it hit right on the slope, perfect spot, and it started to trickle down and it trundled to about three feet below the hole, perfect spot to make the birdie, but it did flirt with the hole. And I basically said nothing. I may have said, oh my, I may have like had a little Dickenberg moment there, but I basically said nothing. And I didn't say anything as Frank stayed with it. Theater major. He watched Jack walk along water's edge. Didn't cut away. Eventually he did because he was playing with Sandy Lyle and Sandy still had to finish his business at 16. But when we got back, Jack's over the putt. And I believe I said something like, Nicholas, for birdie. And of course he knocked it in. And then I said, the bear. There's no doubt about it. The bear has come out of hibernation. And Jack's walking to 17T. He's brandishing his putter up in the air, and this place is electric. I have chill bumps up and down my arms. My teeth are chattering over that call. I thought for sure, because the mic is right in front of your lips, I thought there was some foreign sound that was probably coming out over the broadcast. My teeth clicking. Thankfully, I went back and looked at the tape. It wasn't there. But I really couldn't gain hold of myself. So I kept it short and sweet. I made that one line. And off Jack went to victory. There were still guys to come through. Kite, Norman, Seve, and we covered all the action. But I stayed put until we went off the air. I watched Jack get that historic sixth green jacket. And now I began to have doubt, as all young broadcasters do. Maybe even some old ones do, too, from time to time. But I had doubt just consume my brain. Where did that line come from? What made me say that? Oh, I know where it came from. Somebody else has already said it on the broadcast. I have just parroted something either Bob Murphy said down at 10 or Steve Melnick said at 11, 12. I don't know who said it, but it was probably an hour ago. It was stuck in my brain, and I'm never coming back here again. So anyway, it was a big show, as you know. Some say the greatest golf broadcast and tournament of all time. And once I got back to the compound, uh, Frank came over to me and he gave me a huge hug. Of course, I again, I towered over him 6'3", and I'm just engulfed in a hug. And I said, um, he's a great job, Jimmy. Way to go, kid. I said, well, thank you, sir. I'm really sorry about that line. So now it's become a reality. I've turned you know, this whatever. I have definitely plagiarized. I'm I'm obsessing over it. And I've turned it into my own reality. And I said, I'm really sorry about the line. He said, what are you talking about? I said, the bear has come out of hibernation. What are you sorry about? It's a great line. And I said, well, I believe somebody else said it earlier in the show. He said, only you, son, only you. And I was (laughs) the only one who said it. And I still don't know where it came from, but I'm just grateful it got me back and back a few more times after that too i was watching the last hole of the 91 pga so daly's making the big walk down 18 crowds yelling woo pig suey oh yeah everything's going ken venturi by the way has a great line to pat summerall he says you know this you know this chant pat pat played at arkansas obviously people don't know yeah daly wins the tournament goes in to sign his scorecard and for whatever reason the satellite footage is posted on youtube and you can hear you going where's daly because he's gone to sign the scorecard and he started giving interviews to journalists instead of coming back to the green to talk to you. <laughs> well, yeah. I've got to present the trophy. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to do a standalone interview. I'm actually going to conduct 
the Wanamaker Trophy right. presentation. And you're sort of like, where's John? And it came out over the air. Yeah. Well, no, it was just over the satellite feed. So you can oh, hear during the break. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Okay. You're looking for him. And he's so dazed yeah. and sort of excited. And it's almost, I was going to ask you what you remember about that, that uh, trophy presentation. Because it's almost like he was a little dazed and you were having to explain to him or remind him about <laughs> what he has just done at the PGA. I noticed it. Uh, really, Brian, I noticed it in Butler Cabin. When, when they come into the Butler Cabin, they are totally in shock. Most of them are in shock. And that's what you just described. I have The only recall I have of that trophy presentation is that I see it sometimes in these montages. I was wearing a very ugly tie. I remember that. Psychedelic <laughs> colors. I don't know where that came from. Um, secondly, I just remember Daly on the spot saying he was going to give the first 30000 to those two young girls who had just lost their daddy. And it was a touching, it was an amazingly touching moment. And it launched for us a run now of PGA championships. This is our 32nd this year. And I can still remember it when it was our first. There are only four of us, we figured it out earlier today, who were there in 91, who were working this one at Southern Hills. And that includes our uh, director, Steve Milton, our replay producer, who is our NFL lead producer, Jim Rickoff, and Mark Dibbs, who is our AD on, on our golf telecast. And between production and the on-air broadcasters, we're the, the last four that have been for all 32 of them. There is a little postscript here. Okay. The next week was the International at Castle Pines. Daly had bought a house at Castle Pines. Earlier in the week, Frank comes up with this idea. Remember, there's not this, you know, 20 hours of coverage that you now have or more of Thursday through Sunday coverage of golf. We were basically just entering some Thursday, Friday coverage years. It was very rare. But you come on Saturday and Sunday, and Saturday it might be a 90-minute show, might be two hours. And Sunday was usually a two-hour final round broadcast. But Frank had uh, a crew go out and daily agreed to do it. And he took them to an airport near Castle Pines, over there near the Broncos facility. I think it's called Centennial Airport. And he had John tee up a driver on the end of the runway and get a measurement to how far the ball actually went. And he hit a straight one, and it just keeps on going. And he was trying to get him to on record and on CBS have the longest drive that's ever struck. And he did it. And we put it in our show on either Saturday or Sunday, and I reported on it. John Daly, just being the sweethearted guy he is, invites the crew over for dinner. Okay. Talking Pat, Ken, Frank, the whole announce crew, Frank and a, a few other members of the production team. And we went over to John's house off the 15th hole of Castle Pines no one had ever really done that. I mean, a few had, but they had been veteran legendary players like Ray Floyd or Jack Nicholas had had the crew over to their house through the years. But John Daly cooked steaks for us a matter of days after he won the Wanamaker <laughs> Trophy. We love this guy. He was He's one of us. You know, we were drinking wine, having a great time. And um, I don't know, that's just very special. You know, time, unfortunately, tears away at some of that uniqueness. But I appreciate you bringing it up because it gets lost. But if you really measured it head-to-head -head against anything else 
as improbable in golf to ever happen. It, it, if he, if it, if it was really given a fair view, you would say there's nothing that could ever top that. Second PGA I wanted to ask you about 2000 Tiger Woods at Valhalla and Louisville. Now, a couple of big things have happened at CBS Sports. CBS has lost the NFL rights a few years before. Pat Summerall, the aforementioned, has gone to Fox. Well, that was like six years earlier. Yep. And is that the event that makes you the lead guy on golf, or was that happening anyway? Oh, the 2000 PGA? No, no, no. The Pat going to yes. Fox in 94. Yes, I was Pat's, I guess you could say, understudy. Honored to be his understudy. If he was still here, uh, I would relish the chance to, to to this day be his understudy i never had to have that seat i love the man he uh he was he was just a great friend and i love those years and i think he actually knew that i was not out to one day unseat him i was a kid just loved being a part of the team still do but yes and when he went with the nfl package over to fox which had been announced in December of 93, there would be a few more tournaments where Pat would remain the anchor of golf, his last being the 94 Masters. So my first time as the full-time golf anchor, and I'll qualify that, explain in a minute, as a major, at a major, was in 1994 at Southern Hills and the PGA. Now, between 86 and Pat's departure from the golf crew at the Masters in 94, I filled in for him a number of times and worked with Ken. You know, Pat would take some weeks off. Uh, sometimes, in fact, there were even a few health issues along the way. And I would sit with Venturi at 18. And when Pat would come back, you know, I would return to the 15th or 16th tower and happily go on my way. I first anchored at 87 Castle Pines. I think Pat had a preseason football game conflict. So uh, Frank summoned me up to the anchor chair. But 2000 was a doozy. I mean, that was... It's right in the middle of Tiger Mania. Oh, yeah. He's won the last two majors. Right. It's right in the middle of the Tiger Slam. Did his rise change the way you guys showed golf on CBS? Oh, I don't think there's any question. It changed the way everybody showed golf. How so? Uh, just you had to know, you had to let your audience know where he was and what he was doing. And never before had anybody been pretty much guaranteed they were going to get wall-to-wall coverage in the broadcast windows. Reaction and the popularity in Rise of Tiger was so immense. Golf was growing. The interest in the game was was growing. You couldn't ignore him no matter what he was doing. But the odds were pretty good he was going to be doing well and he'd be in the thick of things anyway. Um, but you know, you just mentioned it. He had won 2000 at Pebble in June. This would be seven weeks before we got to Valhalla and the PGA in 2000. He won the open championship at St. Andrews in July. Those are not CBS broadcasts. I went to both of them as a fan. Wow. Yeah. You just bought a Busman's ticket. Got a ticket. Sat and walked in the gallery. Yeah, I wanted to be there for two different reasons. One, Pebble, I could never get enough of it. It's still my my dream. It's my heaven, my my oasis on earth. It really is deep in my heart, and I wanted to be there for the U.S. Open. So 
I followed uh, the action all four days just as a fan. Didn't want any special treatment. Didn't want any press credential. I just wanted to be, you know, a golf fan attending a major championship. And now I get to the 2000 Open. Remember, Tiger won at Pebble by 15 shots. He was 12 under. Second was a tie for second, was plus three. I mean, it was, I think, the most dominating performance the game has ever known. And I got to be an eyewitness to it. But now he's going to go to St. Andrews, and he's out to win not only with Claret Jug, but what would give him then the career Grand Slam. I needed to see that. And there was one other thing that was happening that week. It was going to be Jim McKay's last show. Oh, yeah. And I needed to be there for that. Long time CBS broadcaster, if people don't know. ABC. ABC, excuse me. Yeah, it's fine. Uh, you know, one of the true icons in the history of this business and a true hero to me. Wrote him letters as a kid. Wrote me back. I mean, I had a wonderful friendship with Jim McKay. Dating back to when I'm in my teens. So... He's 79 years old, and he's announced this is it. He would actually show up and do a few pieces in 02 at the Salt Lake Olympics for NBC. We're not going to count that. Okay, He, he gave up full-time commentary at the Open in 2000. So I reached out to him and said, hey, I, if you don't mind, I don't, I'm not stalking you, but I would really like to come to St. Andrews and see you on your last day ever on air. He said, okay, sure, come on. I'll be staying at the Rusak's Hotel on the 18th fairway. So I do this. I fly over to Scotland on my own, and I take it a few days early and walk around and watch the golf, you know, outside the ropes, not inside. I climbed the wall at the Old Town Cemetery and went on the midnight the night before and read the tombstones of old and Tom, young Tom Morris and did all those things that I love to do, connecting to the soul of the game. And on Sunday morning, the day that Tiger's going to complete his career Grand Slam, I showed up at the appointed hour at the Rusak's Hotel. I called him from the house phone. He said, come on up. I'm in room whatever. I was expecting the presidential suite. Nothing could be grand enough for my man, Jim McKay. It had to be some over-the-top, Three-bedroom suite, baby grand piano overlooking the 18th. Much to my astonishment, it was actually, the view was over the street side, not out of the golf course. And the room, at best, was maybe 10 by 12. There was a little, almost like a cot. It was a twin bed. There wasn't a second twin bed. There was a tiny, tiny bed for Jim McKay. Now, he was not a large man either, but I mean, give Jim McKay a king-size bed, would you <laughs> sure. please, somebody? So... It was interesting. I can still see walking in that room. There was a little desk and a chair, and he had some notes there. I could see he actually would come back to his room, and he would work on his craft. In the windowsill overlooking the street was, was an open bottle of red wine with a cork replaced, and it was about three-quarters consumed. He had a little wine glass next to it. I imagine maybe he had himself a little nightcap as uh, you know, he prepared his thoughts for the next day. I sat there and had at least an hour with McKay. He had had a really difficult time getting to St. Andrews. He got stuck in Heathrow on a connection. And all he wanted to do was to get home. He missed Margaret. 
sweetest relationship. He and Miss, Mrs. McManus, Mrs. McKay. And all I want to do is talk about why world of sports, the Olympics. And I've had these discussions other times, but I kind of wanted to get the brain going down a path of nostalgia. This is the last show. I'm sitting in the dressing room with Pavarotti before the last concert. That's what it is to me. And he had tears in his eyes. And it wasn't because the career was coming to a close. I really believe it had to do with the fact that he had to go back the next day, connect in Heathrow, take that long flight across the country. Here's a guy that traveled the world when travel wasn't easy. Went to the Great Wall of China and everywhere else in the world and brought us back this first ever view of what these countries and cultures looked like. We had no idea back then. There was no internet. But he was done. This road warrior whose very life I wanted to live. He was, he was, he, he, he did not have another road trip in him. And all he kept talking about was getting home to Margaret. So anyway, at some point, after about an hour, the house phone rings. He says, okay, I'll be right down. And there was a young fellow downstairs who works for us. He's on this show this week named Jeff Schapter. He was a runner. And he was going to drive him by cart from the Rusacks over to the ABC Super Tower, which was right of the first tee. So all he had to do was get in a cart and somehow navigate getting across 18 fairway and one fairway, and then he would walk up the stairs and he'd be in the booth for the last time. I stood on the back of the cart. McKay sat in the passenger seat, and Jeff drove the cart. And we got there. I gave him a hug. He thanked me for He couldn't believe I'd come all the way over there to see this. And I could still see him climbing up the steps, and I stood there and watched. I was going to go back and blend into the gallery and watch Tiger complete it, the Grand Slam. And he got to the door, and I half wondered, will he look back? And he opened up the door, and he looked back, and he looked at me and gave me like a thumbs up and a wave. I still see him. Wave, and I wave goodbye, and watch the door shut. And that was it. That was the end of Jim McKay's career. And one of the obviously, one of the lasting memories of my life is being there for that. That's incredible. That's really incredible. You just wanted to be there. <laughs> I want, I had to be there uh, out of respect for someone who was so good to me. And hey, you're a kid, and you know, I, I, I hear from young people all the time. Got a college broadcasting, sports broadcasting award that's named after me. It means a lot to me. It's like in its 12th or 14th year. And everybody just wants someone to make them feel like you believe in them. And this is possible. This dream you have, it's attainable. Jim McKay made me feel like this crazy idea I had in my head since I was 11. This could happen. He believed in me. I can't begin to tell you how emboldened I was by that to know that a giant in the industry would take the time to return a letter or speak to me. And I would go from a kid writing a fan letter to June of 2008. He passed away June 7th, 2008. Died three weeks to the day before my dad passed away, same month. And, uh, I would be a pallbearer at his funeral and deliver one of the eulogies along with guys like Doug Wilson and some of the other ABC greats. Five of us got to speak and stand up and present the last words about this remarkable life. I go from one side of being a kid and a fan to one day I get to speak about him at the memorial service. It's an amazing part of my life and journey. 
What do you remember about Sunday at the 2000 PGA? You got the story here of David and Goliath. I hate to make it sound like a cliche, but I mean, if there's ever a, 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 a place to use that tried and true comparison, this was the occasion. You got Tiger Woods coming off these two majors. He's dominating the game. He had won the PGA the previous year at Medina. You got Bob May, who was a rival of his as a junior out in Southern California. But there is no way Bob May is going to hold up against Tiger Woods. There's just no way. And what do they do? They they go out shot for shot. I mean, they ran away from the rest of the field. I can't even begin to tell you what third place was. It might have been Thomas Bjorn, maybe. But he had to be five, six, seven shots back. So they shoot 31 on the back nine coming in. Think about that. Five birdies and four pars coming in. The race to the finish. They get to the last hole of regulation. This is what I remember, Brian, is the two putts they hold on 18 green. Tiger, I've heard people say it was like a six-footer. I think it was more like an eight-footer, and it was right below us. But first, Bob had a putt that wiggled. I guess you could say it had a double break. And it felt like it took about three years to get to the hole. <laughs> I mean, I've never seen a putt that from that distance that took longer to get to the hole. And, of course, no one thought May was going to make it. And damn if the ball didn't drop. And now Tiger had to make his to force the playoff, which was going to be the first aggregate three-hole playoff you know, we've seen in majors, I believe. Yeah, maybe. It, no, it wasn't. But I think it was the first time for the PGA they had a three-hole aggregate playoff. But anyway, Tiger stood over that putt, and it's Tiger. Is he, is he going to actually be defeated by Bob May? Is he is Bob going to slay the giant? Well, Tiger gets up and knocks it right. I can still see his kind of low fist pump, and off we go to a playoff, which was a really good playoff. There was one birdie on the first hole, which was 16. Tiger dropped the putt from long range and was pointing at the hole. As he was walking after it. Yep. And Gary McCord had thought had one of the great calls in golf history. He saw it. We were watching the ball and the frame that was on the on the ball. But of course, Gary's sitting in a tower behind there, and he can see Tiger walking and pointing afterwards. We always see the replay version of the putt, the live version of the putt. We were tracking the ball. But Gary's call was, oh, he's 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 gonna make it. He's walking right after it. You know, it's something of that effect. It's a very good impression, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I gotta get really high pitched yeah. and really excitable. Mm-hmm. But he knocked it in and Tiger won the, the tournament. And uh, that was three straight on his way to completing the Tiger Slam the following April in Augusta. The really funny moment on 18, the first time they're at 18, right at the end of the fourth round, Tiger's drive goes way left. And it looks like it's going into a bush. And all of a sudden, it just shoots out of this bush. And there's a kid running in the vicinity. And there's this whole question of, did did the kid kick it out of the bush? I remember now. I forgot that there was a... And Kenny Venturi, my partner in the booth, was absolutely convinced that someone had done something with that golf ball. What what happened with that ball? Did you think someone either kicked it or threw it back that direction? I don't know. It, 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 It didn't didn't react naturally, did it? No, it didn't at all. I sure hope someone didn't slap it back. Bob May, though. And I've been to Valhalla for you know several of these majors, all of their majors except the Ryder Cup. There is an incline uh, and a cart path. I'm not sure it still exists. And it's a pretty steep rise 
in that driving landing area if you're far enough left. So if you were to take a golf ball and throw it against a 45 degree angle, I'm not saying this cart path was 45 degrees. Don't, yeah, not saying that, but you know how a ball would like maybe bounce back at you? It, it, that's what it looked like. I mean, it, it, you saw it. It was a little unclear because it was being shot from the camera belonging to Ricky Blaine, who's our 18th old cameraman. God rest his soul. And he was trying to frame it from 270 yards apart. He was that far away. That He was the one tracking the ball flight. And it was in his lens and his framing that you saw that ball with some trees that were also obscuring the view. Just kind of go haywire. What what happened over there? And, you know, nobody to this day, there are a few, I think, eyewitnesses to it. I don't think anything funny happened. But you're right. It, for a while, it became this big mystery. What went on over there? But, um, you know, Tiger went on and, you know, it's one other memory, though, I think you, you've got to come up with for 2000. And that was Friday. It's Jack Nicholas's last PGA championship. And he played with Tiger and he played with VJ Singh the first two rounds. Again, thank you for, for freeing up some of this um, ram space in my head. I've been holding on to these stories. I didn't even know they were in the crevices of my brain, but <laughs> they've been waiting to be dispensed for a long time. Jack was, well, he was 60 years old. He had said goodbye, right? He had said goodbye to the U.S. Open at Pebble. And uh, and knocked it on in two at 18 at Pebble in his last U.S. Open hole and three putted. But here he got to Friday and he had like an 80-yard wedge shot, pitch shot. He had to hold it for Eagle to make the cut. Do you remember it? I remember ball, reading, I read the, about it this week, the, but I, I don't remember go seeing Go YouTube it. this, folks. It's, it hit right short of the hole, went past the hole and spun back. I mean, it looks like there's almost no chance it's going to miss. Maybe 80 yards away and uh, ended up a foot below the hole. He finished with a birdie, and it was over. And there was a point where Tiger pointed at him, and Jack pointed right back at him on the 18th green. It's like, you got it now. I've got it. Thank you. I'm just going to hand you the torch. Okay, I'll take it. It was like a, almost a, not a literal, you wouldn't call it, but a figurative passing of the torch on that green on, on Friday and on Sunday. You know, Tiger was on that green, becoming the first since Hogan in 1953 to win three majors in a year. That was a big storyline for us that week. I remember that. You got a great shot of the two of them in that round where they both had their their kind of a fist behind their back. And Tiger kind of, and Jack? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And they were, in the, they were in the exact same pose, standing next to each other. It was wild. Yeah, it was, it looked, I, it, I totally know the shot you're talking about, and uh, we still use that shot. And it was an honor. It was on Turner, but Kenny and I called that 18th hole, and it meant a lot to be able to call, you know, Jack's last go at it at uh, at the PGA, where of course he tied. He's tied with uh, Walter Hagen for the most with five PGA championships. But uh, you know, his mom had passed away that week, and he came to Valhalla with the service, maybe even on Wednesday. No one thought he had a chance to, was even going to play. And, um, you know, he represented himself really well. And he, he and Tiger had some fantastic moments together visually that um, were very fitting for the game. All right, Jim, our third PGA Championship 2014, Rory McIlroy wins again at Valhalla. 
This one's interesting because there's a big rain delay on Sunday. And what happens in the CBS truck when everything gets pushed back like that later into the day? Yeah, I remember the fill. I remember the players trying to get them to come out of the clubhouse to help us fill some time. And those are never fun shows when you have to fill basically the length of a football game with a bunch of backup programming or live programming, making it up on the fly. Hard work. It's not hard labor, but it, 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 it stretches you pretty thin. All you're thinking about when you're going through this delay you're, you're speaking of is, are we going to finish on Sunday? Are we going to be able to finish and crown a champion? Or is this thing coming back to Monday? <laughs> you know, everybody hates Monday finishes. People go on their way. Talking about viewers, fans, you know, they have to go to work the next day and it loses its sizzle, doesn't have the same impact, but we got it in that 2014 PGA. I've never seen a tournament. Well, one other one, it involved Tiger at Firestone finish any later than what we had when, when Rory putted out with like a six coming up 18 to, to finish the PGA. You're sitting at 18. Could you see the ball? No, not a chance. You could not don't see the even ball try. in flight at all. Not even a chance. I don't even, I, I was playing it all off the monitors, so I couldn't see anything. I thought they really were maybe past their time as they were halfway up the 17th. And now you had two groups coming in. Remember, you had Phil was in the middle of this. You had Rory's going to win it. You had like Henrik Stenson's in this movie. You had Ricky Fowler. Ricky Fowler actually made a pretty good play at tying this thing up on the 18th green with a long range putt. And, and anyway, they get to the 18th green and one group waves the other one up. I mean, suddenly this has turned into from a PGA championship to like a club championship. Hey guys, come on, let's play through. We got dinner to catch. <laughs> and it was so surreal, but in the end, the right guy won, but, but you know, he, it could have been catastrophic in golf parlance. If, if Rory had thrown this away, he actually hit a drive because David Faraday was down there that at first we thought it was going in the water and David was able to see it and identify it and say he was up and in play and all, all Rory had to do in the end was make a five, a par, well, which he did to, to, to win by one. And there was doubt all the way to the last putt that he wasn't going to say, look, I can't read the green right now. No, I'm just going to have to come it. back. Tomorrow. I don't know. How, I don't know how he did it. You know, the other thing about Rory, though, he was coming in, I think, running on fumes. He had won at Hoy Lake, the Open, took a week or two off, and then he went to Firestone, and he won that gathering of all the best players in the world. That's the old World Golf Championship event that we had on the south course at Firestone. So now he shows up at Valhalla. Come on, he's not going to beat the best players in the world three consecutive starts. There's no way. And he did. He managed to do that. You opened up the irises on the CBS cameras. So for people at home, it looked slightly dark, but mostly normal. They couldn't, they couldn't see how couldn't dark. couldn't appreciate how dark it really Yeah, just really so they could was. see anything. Can't see. You can't see. I'm going to test your memory. Do you remember what you said when Rory won the tournament? I know something about a shining star. At we have a shining star at sunset. At sunset, yeah. And we have a shining star at sunset. When do you start thinking of those? Well, that, that one, I, and I don't really recall exactly when I would have come up with that. It would not have been on Saturday night. It would not have been at, at, during a rain delay on Sunday. It, it, you know, you don't know it's going to be 
uh, a race against darkness. You know, they're coming up 18, I'm going to guess here. You know, you can see if he finishes out here um, that the darkness is going to be part of the story. I try to sum up these moments with something that when they play the clip back, oh, it helps define what that moment was. Tiger had won a tournament at Firestone by 11 shots. You remember this? And he, on the last hole, the 72nd hole, he had an eight iron from like 178 yards. And he knocked it a foot or two feet to close out an absolute landslide victory. And I can remember sitting in that tower, looking down some 20 yards away from the pen. I can't see it. I can't see the ball. I can't see the pen. From 178, there's no way he sees the flag stick. I mean, I can't imagine if there's any kind of illumination that could give him maybe a little optics on where the flag stick is. And from 178, he knocked it a foot, knocked it a foot. And now on that one, I, I know I said something about, you know, lights out for Tiger or something on that line. But as it's all kind of coming to a conclusion, you start thinking, how do you frame it? How do you frame it? And a lot of times you don't know you're about to frame a moment. A guy knocks in a putt from 30 feet and, you know, you have that shock and awe in your voice. A Marco Miro wins the Masters with a final old birdie. But I think most of the time it, it's coming down to the wire and it just kind of comes to you on that last minute or two before there's that last stroke and you want to capture. You're not trying to be schmaltzy here. You're trying, you're trying to help define a clip that's going to be played back forever. And I think sometimes, you know, I, I get asked about this a lot by fans and sometimes in like radio talk and they want to know what the process is. But you think about it, what sports do you really define moments like that? On a week-in and week-out NFL game, do you define it at the, at, the, at, the, at the gun at the end of the fourth quarter? Not really. Not necessarily, no. No. no, no. But a Super Bowl or a AFC championship game, you might. Probably not because a lot of times it's a kneel down or something like that. And it's, it's not like it's a moment that you're going to, it's going to house these kinds of memories. But I am my, when I'm entrusted with at CBS, I get a, I get a national championship game in college basketball. Kind of, I think that moment confetti's about to fly and the ball's being heaved into the air in celebration a hundred feet high. I think it kind of demands that you say something other than Kansas has won the championship. It needs to fit the moment. But golf, I think this is where I'm getting to. I have events. Super Bowl shows up on my dance card every third year. An AFC championship game every year. A national championship game every year. The Masters every year. The PGA championship every year. If you're at 15 or 16 or 17, no one's asking you to define it. You know what I'm saying? You might have the critical stroke, but it's not really in your job description to put a final statement together about that event and that's just the way that watching these broadcasters of my youth i noticed in golf they usually had a great summation line like pat summerall there's your champion i can hear you know pat having some of these lines through the years and um with maybe it was with john daly listen to the roar as he was coming <laughs> up 18 you were describing to go up 18 uh it's a challenge and most of the time, it's happening on the fly or it's happening on the very moment. Phil, 04, Masters. Is it his time? Yeah!
Yes, at long last. I didn't have any clue I was going to say that. I walked out of the booth, went down and presented him the green jacket. Somebody said, great call at the end. What, what did I say? I had no idea. And I know over a replay, we had it covered from six different angles. There's a shot of him with his eyes watching the ball track to the hole. And I said something like, watch his life change right here. In that very instant, when the ball went in the hole, there's a realization. Life would never be the same for him again. How many people in their lives have a camera trained on them when their life goes in a completely different sphere? What is it? Birth of a child. Is a camera on you as a dad? What is that moment? Yeah, okay, a wedding. But, but talking about career-changing, life-altering, Phil's 04 Masters win, he was 32 years old. Uh, he, he, had been, he had been dogged with that question for years, is he ever going to win a major? And so that shot of him with not the winning putt is at his time, the sequence, replay sequence that followed after it. Watch, watch right here. Watch his life change. What does that look like when that very instant you realize you've captured something you could only dream of since you were, for him, three years old? It's never going to be the same again. So anyway, there was a sh shining star at sunset. The one that was pre-planned the most of all time in my career, not even close, there's nothing else I could even compare it to, was Tiger 1997, the win for the ages. He had a nine-shot lead on Saturday night. My instincts tell me that this is going to be one of the most historically relevant days in the history of the game, with a significance that far transcends a sporting event. That clip, that last stroke, wherever it comes from, a tap-in, a 15-footer, whatever it is, that clip will be played back at every Masters tournament, every Masters opening, every tease in the next 25, 50, 100, 200 years from now. 200 years from now, someone's going to open up the Masters tournament with the opening tease, which I absolutely treasure that responsibility of trying to put that together. But inside that little montage, there's going to be a win for the ages. And I knew that. I knew that on Saturday night, how can you condense the narrative to that video clip to something that historically holds up? I can't just like freewheel it and freelance and say, there's your champion. What well, was bigger than that? Tiger wins it. Oh, he makes his par. Yeah, whatever it is, some mundane nothing. I thought it should mean something. And that's what I came up with on that Saturday night in 1997. And that one was pre-planned. After that, I got a lot of, hey, you planned that one, didn't you? Like a, kind of like a gotcha. I said, damn right <laughs> I did. I was doing my job. right? But, like if you were there to cover it and you're writing the game story in the Masters, I guarantee you on Saturday night with a nine-shot lead, you would be putting together thoughts in your head of how you were going to write the lead. Got to get this thing. I got to get off to a start that's going to live up to the, it's going to be commensurate with the level of this tournament. If you didn't do that, you weren't doing your job. And he's got a nine shot lead. And, and, you know, I had that one in my head and I felt the presence of McKay and Whitaker and Summerall and Chris Shankle and Dick Enberg. I really, truly, figuratively felt their presence like they were peering over my shoulder. They were all alive. They're all gone now. 
they're all heroes to me. And I knew I had this little game in my head. The next day, they're going to be watching. They all felt invested in my career. I had friendships with all of them. And I felt like they were going to be watching to see how I handle it. See how Jimmy handles this. It's a big moment here. What's he going to say? And I felt that. And I wanted to make them proud. And um, I hope I did. I think I did. I think it was the right line. One last PGA Championship, Jim. 2021, Phil Mickelson wins Kiowa Island Golf Resort in South Carolina. I'm talking about Phil in a very different context, obviously, over the last couple of months. So set this back up. What do you remember about calling the final round last year? Just a matter of is he is there any chance he's going to hold up? When's, when are the wheels coming off? When is it going to be the wayward tee shot that, you know, hits off the hospitality tent at the 18th hole or something <laughs> bizarre? He, he bogeyed the first hole, if I've memory yeah, he did. served. Kepka birdied the first hole, so he lost the lead right on the on the 55th hole of the tournament. He had the lead through three rounds, and you thought, oh, boy, what's going to happen here? And then he holed the shot from the sand on the fifth. And uh, Vern Lunk was called that one. I remember, oh, my gracious. I love love Vern. And I love when Vern uses the word gracious. That's one of his really kind of go-to words, and he says it better than anyone. Wonderfully Good old gracious. Southern, isn't it? Yeah, it's just, it's just the way his voice hits those notes. I love him. No, it, it, um, it got a little shaky for a moment for Phil on the backside. He had a tee shot in the water. Uh, 12 or 13. And all of a sudden you felt like, uh, you know, th this is, this is like serious nail biting time. I mean, we kept bringing up that Julius Burroughs held the record for the oldest to ever win a major championship that had been in 1968 at Pecan Valley. Of course, it doesn't even exist anymore outside of San Antonio. And, um, Phil somehow, cause he loves to bomb it. He got on the 16th only. He's playing with Brooks Gapka. And Phil hits a tee shot that was measured at 360 something yards. It was the longest drive the entire week on that par five. And it happened from the 50 year old guy on his way to winning. It's obviously an emotional round for a lot of people watching at home. Do you get emotional in the booth? I hope you could hear it sometimes. And I can't help it. That's just who I am. You know, I get. I get knocked around sometimes from people about being too syrupy and too dramatic. It's just what I feel. You know, I learned a long time ago, and it's going to sound like psychobabble here. I can't tell you how you should feel, nor should you tell me how I should feel. People have different feelings. And I think we understand others better when we, like, respect that. And that's just the way I'm wired. You know, my, my mom is still alive. She's 91, very sentimental lady, and she tears up over anything and i see moments that that really touch me i can't i can't hide it in fact i have a hard time sometimes even getting the words out i'm just touched by it and it can be maybe indistinguishable indecipherable for the guy at home because i'm not on camera i have the luxury of being a play-by-play -play guy we're seldom on camera i like it that way don't ever put me on camera i'm happy behind the camera when you're doing play-by-play, -play, you can have long lapses of silence. Again, as Frank Trichinian said, it's a visual medium, and you can gather yourself. You don't have to be talking wall-to-wall. -wall. It's far better, as Frank would say. Use silence as a sword. It's a weapon. But sometimes that silence is generated by the fact that I'm so choked up, and my voice, if I am going to speak, is going to be a quiver, and people are going to be able to 
maybe not only have a hard time understanding what I'm trying to say, but wondering why am I so touched by something that I'm struck by, that I've just seen. So you feel, and this was, this was in 2001, you felt this way. There were moments when you were choked up. I think if you went back and I never seen it again, if you went back and listened to me signing off the air that night after he holed out, this was not a sports production. That's just like the masters. These, you know, this is a totally different world or realm. Like we fall into the category at things like the sports Emmys as, oh, best live show, PGA championship and the Super Bowl. It's like completely two different universes. One's a football game, and it, they and today, the enormously talented people in our industry, the way they can shoot it, and all the different Atlas cameras and everything else. I mean, it's gorgeous. But golf in a major, you're talking. I'm going to just use ours as an example here, not not to discredit anything. NBC does a great job with there too, the U.S. and the Open Championship. Take the Masters. Take the PGA, take the PGA at Kiowa. Drone footage, these aren't sports productions. They're not at all. These are cinematic, uh, these are cinematic productions, is what they are. They're not, it's not sports television in my book. It's a piece of, it's, it's a theatrical production. That's what it is. Visually, uh, it just jumps off the screen. If you never even watched a me, uh, golf on a weekly basis, you sit back and just watch it. I think you would be struck by the talent of the, with the technical and the production team, forget those announcers. Just look at the way they present something over a span of 200 acres, not inside the boundaries of a stadium where you know the ball is going to be inside that stadium. This is a this is an event that takes place over again several hundred acres. Ball can go anywhere. Five balls are in the air at any given moment at one time. You're jumping around. You're trying to cover it all and. You got to, of course, hit your commercials and other things you're obligated to. But it's, uh, I was really proud of our crew uh, at at Kiowa. It was one of the first things we had coming back out of COVID. Now, they said they had 10,000 fans a day. It felt more like 20, 25. I don't know if anybody ever really kept count. But watching Phil bust through the crowd on 18 as the people's champion. Yeah. And, and that wonderful melody that is our pga championship music and now we're trying to sign sign off i'm trying to sign off and i'm trying to sum it up i don't have notes i haven't written this this is all like i'm talking to you right now off the top of my head what did i feel what what was it that struck me about this how do you frame this it's crazy but i can totally remember being choked up about uh about phil's victory there uh i I mentioned a while ago, is it his time? Yes, at long last. I wanted to use the word time. It struck me as he was coming up 18. Nobody's ever picked up on this. So obviously, I guess maybe it didn't work. Yeah, Phil defeats Father Father Time. time. And I just, that again, that was coming up 18. I just thought I got to do something with time to play it off of his first. This is going to be his last major. Is it his time to Phil defeats Father Time? And I repeated it going off the air and whatever. I was trying to wax without a note. And I think I said something about, was it his time? Yes, it was. And it's a time we'll never forget. Something like that. The very end, I'm talking, he's been given the trophy. And I think it's an underappreciated part of the business of what you're trying to do as a commentator, as a lead commentator. These moments of summation, you don't have a 
keyboard in front of you. You haven't written it the previous night. You know, you're, it's extemporaneous speaking and it needs to fit the moment and you have to hit a time to the second for the network. So your words are going to be in the length of your story is going to be dictated by what they present you. Well, you got 35 seconds to take us off the air. Well, I've got to frame this in 35 seconds and I can't go 37 because boom, they're gone <laughs> and you'll be cut off in mid sentence. I don't remember a whole lot about that whole sequence. I was kind of in a trance, but it was exciting to be there to see it. And I ranked that one up there with, um, you know, top 10 things I've ever covered. Last one for you, Jim. Al Michaels called a Super Bowl this year at age 77. You're going to be calling golf majors when you're 77? I sure hope so. I'll take it, actually, if I could. If I could be blessed enough to call. I will take extras, but I would like to be able to work until the 2036 Masters. And that would be, for me, the 51st time I called the Masters tournament. I'll leave you with this. I one time said, and Venturi really framed this for me. I'm coming back after Jack's one uh, in 86. He pulls up in a golf cart, offers me a ride. He says, Jimmy, I'm, I love the fact they called me Jimmy. My dad was Jim. I'm Jimmy to all my closest friends, my mom, my wife. Jimmy's always been my name because I'm the third. But he says, Jimmy, he said, how old are you, son? It's very parental the way he said that. And I said, I'm 26, sir. He said, I'm going to make a prediction for you. You're going to be the first guy that ever says he broadcasts 50 of these. Oh, whoa. But I can promise you this. This was his point, I think. You will never live to see a day greater than this around Augusta. And I thought, well, I had a whole lot of emotions. He called me Jimmy. He called me son. I'm going to do 50. Wow, that's outrageous. And what a compliment. What a nice thing to say. But then the downer, I'm ne it's never going to be this good, man. All, all the rest are going to be an afterthought. Kenny was right about almost everything. That one I can't say he was right about because we got to live through Phil's 04, Tiger 97, Tiger 2019. And best of all for me on a personal level, Freddie 1992, to see my old college sweet mate, see his dream fulfilled and to be there to give him a green jacket. It has been a dream, every single step of it. So I'm making a speech at Bel Air Country Club. I'm getting some LA Sports Sportsman of the Year Award. I asked Venturi and Jack Whitaker to be my presenters, as crazy as this sounds. These two guys are going to introduce me. So they do, jointly. And I tell the story that I just told you about Kenny telling me one day you'll do 50 of these. And I was very proud of myself. And I announced my retirement that night, April the 8th, 2035. The Masters ends on the second Sunday in April. And I looked it up. That's going to be April 8th when it finishes in 2035. That night, we're out for a nightcap. And Whitaker says, hey, I heard what you said up there about 2035. He said, your math's off. I said, how's that? He said, you need to, you need to do another year. You need to go to at least 2036. I said, why is that? He says, because in 2036, that will be the 100th playing of the Masters. He said, you need to be there for that. And Augusta's going to want you to be there for that. And I thought, again, he just redefined a career goal. Okay. And God willing, my health can hold up and people still want me to do it. 
put it again in context with Al, I would be at at that point, I would be 76 years old. He's 78 calling Super Bowls and the NFL, and he's still the greatest. So I think I can do it. I'm trying to take care of my health. I want my kids to be able to see that. And it's getting closer, though, Brian. Unfortunately, that date's kind of sneaking up on me. So I'm I'm going to beg one of these days probably for a, a new goal or a new view. But if I could if I could broadcast 51 Masters, and that would mean I did a lot of football and a lot more Super Bowls. And we'll see. Maybe a few more Final Fours, you know, for sure. Um, it's been... It's been the childhood dream come true. Jim Nance, thanks for coming on the Press Box. Good luck editing this. <laughs> <laughs> All right, it's time for the second weekly edition of David Shoemaker Guesses the Strained Pun Headline. All right. Monday's headline, which was actually the title of Adam Lefko's Tumblr, was Out of Lefko Field. Today's headline comes to us from Dan Barbosa, or Barbossa. Sorry, Dan. It's from the New York Times. David, it's an article about motorcycles. Jay Shia, David, the subject of the article, is the proprietor of Madhouse Motors, a 6,000-square-foot motorcycle shop in the Roxbury neighborhood of Boston. Madhouse performs routine maintenance and repairs, refurbishes vintage bikes, provides winter storage and completes customization projects. Ms. Shia also maintains a studio there where she creates artistic yet writable motorcycle sculptures. Okay. We're servicing the bikes. We're also doing motorcycle art. What was the New York Times's strained pun headline? Um, it's a place that, that does auto, like motorcycle service and motorcycle art. Mm-hmm. Is that is there anything about the man? Um. <laughs> um what if you think God, about timeless chopper? timeless oh. best sellers? Oh, Zen in the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. Uh mm-hmm. Zen, so we're gonna play with that. Oh, um Um something. Uh Art. Let's say art is the first word. Art. art, art, and the Zen of motorcycle maintenance. Art and the art. Uh, and what's the, a what's a good word for a place where you're hanging out? Art in the pen and the den of motorcycle maintenance. Art oh, in good. a den of motorcycle maintenance. That's really good. By the way, the New York Times is web headline: striking a balance between art and motorcycle maintenance. Mm. Prince mm. better, folks. He is David Shoemaker. I'm Brian Curtis. Production magic by Erica Cervantes. Back Monday with more lukewarm takes about the media. See you then, David. See you later, Brian.